This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is Episode 9 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Thursday, the 2nd of April. And Leon, what's on the schedule for this week? Well, Gary, we're starting off talking to Dan Ferguson. He's from Design Crowd, and he's going to be talking to us about crowdsourcing and crowdfunding design, which is going to be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, then we're going to have a chat with economist Saul Eslake all about Joe Hockey's discussion paper on tax, and that's going to be fascinating too. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of worry about tax all all around the world. I mean, the, the Brits are going into an election, and tax is uh, a big uh, issue in there too. Uh, and bear in mind, their uh, VAT, according to our GST, is now up to 20%. That's right, that's right. Which uh, maybe points away for us. Yeah. Well, let's start off with a chat with Dan Ferguson. Good day. Dan Ferguson, tell us about Design Crowd. Design Crowd is uh, a custom design marketplace. It's uh, one of the world's largest, and uh, it was started uh, around about seven to eight years ago um, uh, by Alec Lynch um, uh, from his parents' garage. Uh, so it's a free startup in every sense of the word. Uh, funded in three kind of phases, um, originally by credit card self-funded and on to angel investors and then in more recent years, uh, VC funding. Um, and it's, I guess, a, 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 a true innovation and a disruptive force in, uh, in a uh, over $45 billion marketplace, which is uh, graphic design um, globally. Um, and it's truly innovative, and I guess that's probably I'm probably almost jumping on to what might be your next question, but uh, it's innovative because if you think about the way the world, and small business in particular, um, has done graphic design to date, how they've got their custom graphic design, it's uh, usually by um, approaching their local graphic design shop um, or other sources like that and um, asking for design. Um, going back and forth over usually a period of week, um, getting getting uh, a handful of designs, feeding back, um, and then iterating and finally selecting or finalising the design. Um, there's a number of, I guess, challenges uh, with that process. One is the, the ad hoc nature of uh, the design needs and the match to those design needs. Um, there's a varying range of talent um, across localities in terms of graphic design, um, uh, prices set by local market, and the the output can be technically proficient, um, but perhaps the match to the original um, customer's need can vary in its uh, strength, I guess, because what customers are looking for, they have a business, a small business they love, that is often their... Um, almost like their child and, and they want to get a logo or a, a custom graphic design that matches that uniqueness in their mind um, and often if you get one or three or five um, designs, the match to the uniqueness, the match to what you were hoping for and what you uh, wanted um, can vary in how, how well that is matched whereas our process is a little different. So you'll come onto our site and you will essentially fill out a quick brief. It says things like, you know, what is your business about? Um, what are you looking for in design? What kind of designs do you like? What colours do you like? What uh, branding do you want to infer or confer? And, and then also how much you're willing to, to put forward, how much you're willing to pay for your, uh, the, thing you're, the, the design you're looking for. And um, essentially you press go. I'm making it sound uh, probably very simple, but you press go. That goes out to uh, over 400,000 designers uh, in, a, in a brief or an alert and um, uh, kind of asking them, hey, 
what do you think? Is this something you could contribute to? And within hours, you'll start getting designs back uh, from across the world. It's a, it's a magical process. From across the world, different suggestions, different thoughts, different ideas. And because of the variety, origins, variety of thoughts, the creativity, it's, it's well, obviously it's an arguable point but because it's subjective, but it's much more diverse. It's much more, uh, many more options and iterations than is possible if you go to um, your local um, graphic design shop or an agency. Um, and from those various, those, that, that um, huge array of different ideas, you choose, you either narrow it down or you choose your favourite and you only pay for your favourite. So, Is there a direct link between the designer offering an idea and the customer who's working through your platform, how, how does it go through Design Crowd? Um, so essentially, where where we manage communities, uh, communities of uh, businesses and um, uh, customers that approach us and are looking for design, and then communities of designers. So we are the platform upon which they engage and connect with each other. So that that brief will go out to designers. Those designers who sit on our platform will then contribute to the brief. The customer gets all the designs from around the world. Is that right? So the customer then makes a selection rather than design crowd. That's right. That's right. The customer will choose their, their favourite. Now your business model is how does that work do you pick up a fee from the designer from the potential customer or you know where do you clip the ticket yeah, we, we uh, charge a fee for, I guess, the platform and the services which the platform offers and contributes. So things like um, the management of each project, uh, customer service, all that sort of, those sort of uh, areas of our business. And then in addition, a, a percentage of each job. Uh, our model is, is crowdsourced. So we have a, the crowd being the designers and the customers that arrive on our platform will ask the crowd, will we'll, uh, brief, um, send a brief out to the crowd who will then uh, contribute across different countries, different um, backgrounds, uh, different skill sets. And depending on the job and their match to that job and their match to the, the contribution to that job, they'll either win or um, potentially get participation or run up payment um, or at the very least gain in skills. So yeah. where did most of the designers come from? Um, they're spread across the world. One of our largest markets is the, the US, um, the UK's large market, and then also uh, Asia-Pacific nation, South America, Eastern Europe, so on. Um, I think the largest country, so probably to answer your question more directly, the largest uh, percentage of designers is from the US. Crowdsourcing is getting to be quite a common thing. You've got Odesk, which uh, seeks talent in the sort of accounting business. They've got you guys, uh, Design Crowd in the design area. You've got New Zulu, which deals with breaking news. Media, yeah. Uh, and media and it's it's very it seems to be highly successful and to some degree uh, certainly in the media side it's um, beating back the confusion of Facebook and Twitter so it it tends to discipline a market but on a very broad base is that we roughly how you work yeah look i think some of the the joys of crowdsourcing some of the advantages too um, uh, shouldn't necessarily be tamed if you place too much constriction um, and if you uh, I guess curate the participants in your community too much uh, then you risk losing the creativity the diversity that the kind of basic features of the model concerns. Break that down a little bit. If we, you know, our designers come from a range of different backgrounds. If we said you had to have a certain level of qualification to participate, that would rule out a whole bunch and it would rule out a whole bunch of talent because the joy, the, the, the wonder of our platform and in crowd, and often across industries in, in crowdsourcing um, is that it, no matter, it, it's 
kind of a de facto or an implicit thought is no matter where you're from and what your background, if you're talented, you can secure um, both work at a personal level, but also you can contribute. And uh, it really brings down the barriers of entry. And that's, you know, that's uh, not, it's not just the kind of front end to the customer disruption there. That, that's the, the fundamental disruption to the industry in terms of if you're talented, it doesn't matter if you're, you've uh, studied for five years, um, your skills will be decided and um, I guess judged by market forces and um that's, uh, yeah, so, so I agree in part with your comment that we add, I guess, structure. Perhaps discipline is, is, uh, there are some elements of our platform that, so for instance, if a designer is uh, contributing work that is copied or if a designer is contributing work that is templated or, um, along those lines, that is not, um, not encouraged. In, indeed, uh, it's, it's against the rules of our platform. But, uh, beyond that, in terms of background qualifications, what they can contribute, and, and again, within limits, but, um, what they contribute, we try and keep, keep those um, barriers down to maximise creativity. So you do have an oversight, but it, it's sort of yes. fairly benevolent. Yeah, I, I would I would say that's a fair point. Yeah, it, it's benevolent. I think um, there still needs to be some structure. The nature of our platform in that the designers submit actual designs. So in some other, I guess, crowdsourcing or more freelancing um, outsourcing platforms, um, there won't be actual designs submitted. It is more like crowd of um, resources or res- or individuals saying, "Yes, I will do that job for this price. Here is my background." Whereas on our platform, they'll actually submit their entry, um, and those entries will compete against each other. That also adds some kind of uh, market discipline of its own. If they're, if they're not submitting good designs, then they won't win the job. So Dan, you're based internet based obviously uh, so therefore based globally but do you, your office uh, base is where? Australia or UK? Uh, office is based in, we have a number of offices so we have offices in Sydney, Philippines and San Fran um, I guess uh, where, where we started though is in Sydney. Dan Ferguson thank you very much for a very interesting chat. Thank you Dan. My pleasure thank you very much. So what do you think that's pretty interesting there Leon? I thought it was fascinating and certainly the way of the future Gary Yep, very much. And we become more and more digital as we go along. That's right. That's right. Anyway, so now we've got Saul Eslake. Saul Eslake, the long-awaited federal government discussion paper on tax has suggested Australia relies too heavily on corporate income taxes and not enough on consumption taxes like the GST. What's your view about it? Well, that's what the paper says, and I have a fair amount of sympathy with the second half of that proposition, at least, that Australia's GST is... Uh, of 10% uh, is significantly less than the OECD average, which is close to 20%, and the base of Australia's GST is in some respects narrower than that in other countries. And much closer to home, we have a very clear contrast with New Zealand that has a 15% GST that applies to just about everything and is much easier and cheaper to collect than Australia's GST is. So I certainly have a lot of sympathy with that point of view. Uh, The comparison between how much Australia raises by way of revenue from income tax uh, compared with other OECD countries overlooks to some extent the fact that most other Western countries have what they call social security contributions, which are sort of a combination between an employee funded payroll tax and compulsory superannuation contributions and in a sense a a lot like income tax if you were to include those then 
Australia isn't so different from many other countries in terms of the proportion of its total tax take that comes in that form. Where we do stand out is in our relatively heavy reliance on corporate income tax and the Treasury discussion paper makes the point that a very large proportion of Australia's corporate income tax revenues comes from a relatively small number of companies. The international trend is certainly towards lower rates of company tax than Australia's 30%. Uh, but of course that has to be paid for in some way and the last attempt to broaden the base of company tax by reducing various concessions, deductions and exemptions in order to pay for a reduction in the statutory rate didn't get too far because businesses couldn't agree among themselves as to whether that should happen. I suspect if the company tax rate is to be lowered to something more like the Western country average that's close to 20%, then dividend imputation and its future is going to have to be part of that picture. And of course, the Treasury's discussion paper does put dividend imputation on the table too. So what does that mean for dividend imputation? Is that gone? The argument that the discussion paper makes is that dividend imputation hasn't done as much to attract foreign investment as was claimed when dividend imputation was first introduced by Paul Keating and Bob Hawke in the late 1980s. And others have made the point that in a global capital market as we now have, which arguably we didn't when the imputation system was introduced in the 1980s, it doesn't do anything to lower the cost of capital to Australian firms either. Uh, it obviously does help enforce compliance with the company tax system because companies can only offer frank dividends that shareholders like if they've paid company tax. So that's a desirable feature of the system. But on the other hand, more than half of all frank dividends go to taxpayers in the top income tax bracket. That's where only about 2.5% of taxpayers are. And so there's also a legitimate debate to be had about whether dividend imputation contributes to the fairness of Australia's tax system as well. Right. I mean, the discussion paper also floats a radical long-term change, zero tax for small business. I mean, how do you see that happening? Well, I guess the only way that that could happen, and I haven't read that part of the tax discussion paper yet, would be if all of the income earned by small businesses was taxed at the marginal rates applicable to the owners of those small businesses. And that may, of course, may mean that the income is taxed at a higher rate than the current company tax rate of 30%. So that's something that, at least on the surface, would appear to cut both ways. And when people look into it in more detail, they may not be quite as enthusiastic about it as they are when they see the possibility of zero tax on small businesses as a headline. Right, right, right. I mean, the, the Treasurer has said that the problem with our current tax system is it was designed before the 1950s and is ill-suited to where we are now. And I think that's a fair criticism. Indeed, the Income Tax Assessment Act was originally introduced in 1936, I think, and while it's been through a number of amendments uh, over the years since then, almost all of those amendments have, in one way or another, introduced additional complexity and compliance burdens. They've often been done to grant special privileges to relatively small groups within the Australian community, and those special privileges, in turn, have opened 
opened up avenues for avoidance and evasion that have undermined the integrity and equity of the system as a whole and led it to have distorting impacts on decision-making and economic activity. So there's a very good case for almost going back to the beginning and starting to design a new tax system from scratch. That's probably hard to do because all of those privileges that the tax system confers on particular groups within the community, particular types of income, particular forms of business organization or particular savings vehicles are all capitalized into prices somehow or another. And that in turn means that there are powerful constituencies for retaining the existing set of arrangements. And they will tend to be much more vocal than the much more widely distributed group of people who benefit uh, from any change. The bottom line, though, is that retirees and farmers could lose out because the trade-off would be to get rid of a whole range of existing tax concessions for them, wouldn't it? I suspect that farmers won't be worse off as a result of any changes. The National Party will make sure of that. Uh, but wealthy, self-funded retirees who are very generously treated by Australia's existing taxation arrangements may not be as well treated as they currently are in the event of any substantial changes. And the discussion paper that Treasury's released does highlight the generosity of the tax treatment of superannuation contributions, savings and payouts that are made by or to high-income households. It asks the legitimate question whether those concessions have to be as generous as they are in order to encourage high-income households to make adequate preparation for their retirement. And it raises questions about whether some of those concessions are sustainable given the other pressures that will emerge on the budget uh, particularly as a result of the ageing of the population. But isn't the problem that uh, if you have a system that's designed to encourage people to save for their retirement, you need to have a certain number of incentives in there? Well, you do, but whether those incentives need to be as generous as they presently are is something that this discussion paper will hopefully encourage discussion about. I mean, someone in my position, for example, who is on a marginal tax rate now of 49%, but if I make contributions to super up to a limit, those contributions are taxed at 15%. That is a concession to me of 34 percentage points. The earnings on those savings generate while they're in my super fund are taxed at 15% rather than 49% as they would be outside of super. And provided I wait until I'm after 60 to take those accumulated savings out, then I'm not taxed on them at all. Now, if I were less generously treated than I currently am, would I still save for my retirement? Yeah, I think I would. Is the amount that I would save for my retirement likely to be all that different? Probably not. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm that much different from other people in the top income tax bracket in that kind of thinking. So the conclusion in my view, ought to be that we could make these concessions less generous and high-income earners would still want to save pretty much as much as they presently do to support themselves in retirement. And uh, the future of the GST, do you see it sort of moving beyond 10%? I would like to think so. I think there's a lot to be said 
for the kind of tax reform that New Zealand has successfully accomplished on two occasions now, which has entailed an increase in the rate of the GST from 10% to 12.5% and then subsequently to 15%. In the latter case, with a reduction in the top rate of income tax to 33%, uh, which now cuts in an income of about 75,000 New Zealand dollars, uh, New Zealand actually raises a slightly higher proportion of its GDP in taxes of one sort or another, but it seems to do it in ways that have far less a distorting influence on economic activity over there than we've had here. And interestingly, from the political dimension, Prime Minister John Key was able to do that in his second term in office and get himself re-elected with a bigger majority last year than he'd had before. So uh, New Zealand's experience does suggest that if you argue this case well and set the facts before the people and produce a system that they in turn can see is basically fair, uh, you can do it without paying a major political price as well. Which would uh, suggest also including uh, items like food and education in the current GST. Well, that would be my view. I mean, although most people tend to believe almost as a knee-jerk reaction that the GST is a regressive tax and that to increase it or to broaden its base would be regressive, uh, it's hard to believe that for example, including private health insurance or private school fees in the GST base would be regressive. Uh, That would fall predominantly on upper income households. The Henry Review showed that the top 20% of the income distribution spends five times as much on GST-free food as the bottom 20% of the income distribution does. So I'm not persuaded that to remove the exemption from food would be regressive in the way that it's normally characterised. I think including health would probably be regressive and since most health spending is undertaken by or on behalf of the public sector, there's perhaps not much point in having a GST on health in order to fund spending on health, but I certainly think the GST base can and should be broader than it presently is, even if you don't go as far as including health in them. So there's like Thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. So what do you think about uh, the hockey plan? Well, uh, it uh, raises a lot of questions, and uh, it doesn't actually uh, tell us what the government plans to do, And um, but it throws everything on the table, whether it's uh, changing superannuation, dividend imputation, uh, GST, everything's on the table. Yeah, and all of them are, uh, you know... <laughs> Tender topics, aren't they? Oh, yes. So it's going to be fascinating to watch. Anyway, uh, there's a lot been happening in the news, Gary. And uh, first of all, there are signs of recovery in the Europe. Uh, a European Commission survey shows that confidence in the Eurozone's economy rose for a fourth straight month in March. That's a highest since July 2011. And figures just in today show that unemployment in, uh, in the Eurozone have, has actually dropped to its lowest level in three years. And so um, the European Commission's economic sentiment indicator rose by 1.6 points to 103.9. And uh, all of this tells us that despite the uncertainty surrounding Greece, the Eurozone's economy finally seems to be leaving behind its crisis after two recessions since 2008. And optimism is also increasing because of the European Central Bank's money printing program. Yeah, but it, we've still got a problem with Greece. It's still a worry, isn't it? 
That's right, and and it's still patchy. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, Italy showed the biggest jump in morale. Uh, you know, it increased two point five points, followed by Germany, Spain, the Netherlands. But economic morale in France, which is Eurozone's second biggest economy, rose just zero point four points in March. So it's very patchy. Yeah, very. Yeah, France does have some problems, and and that's reflected in these numbers. They're pretty tough. That's right. Now, uh, in the US, the world's biggest economy, it started slowly in 2015 uh, because of the winter. The latest data shows consumer spending barely rose in February because frigid temperatures kept households away from malls and automobile dealerships. And Commerce Department data reveals the 0.1% gain in purchases followed a 0.2% drop in January. And when that's adjusted for inflation, spending actually declined for the first time in almost a year. And car showrooms, restaurants and clothing stores were among places wanting for customers because Americans were fighting the chill by huddling at home, Gary. Yeah, we don't want to go out and buy a new car and then freeze your bum off, do you? Well, yeah, yeah, but these are really important figures, Gary, because uh, consumer spending generates more than two-thirds of US economic output. Yeah, and the hands are in their pockets not only to keep them warm, now, uh, to Australia, and the big news, of course, was uh, what we talked about with Saul Leslake, a federal government discussion paper, which has suggested Australia relies too heavily on corporate income taxes, not enough on consumption taxes like the GST. And in highlighting the complexity of the current GST, the 200-page paper used an example of how pizzas, pizza subs, pizza pockets and battery bakery-style pizza rolls are defined by law and taxed differently. And discussion paper floats an even more radical long-term change, zero tax for small business, but retirees and farmers could lose out because the trade-off would be to get rid of a range of existing tax concessions. And the government's tax discussion paper also calls for debate on negative gearing and capital gains tax discounts, uh, which reduced liabilities for investors and has been blamed for driving up property prices. And it said negative gearing allows more people to enter the market, but that potential tax advantage comes from the CGT discount upon the sale of a property. And this rethink paper found the federal government collected about 70% of its revenue from company tax and personal income tax, 70%. And they're saying that as inflation and pay rises will see more workers paying from the top tax rate, it said 56% of the government's income will come from personal income tax alone within a decade. And it warns that we that will discourage hard work and investment and create the potential to harm Australia's economic growth in years to come. It also questioned the rationale for tax breaks like negative gearing and super contributions. And in a chapter on the GST, questions were raised over both the rate of a tax and the range of items it applies to. And Treasury says that of the 33 developed countries that have taxes similar to GST, only three in the world charge less than Australia. And the department's also worried about the great importance of spending on items not subject to the GST, like health and education and goods sold online. And it says the proportion of sales covered by the GST slipped from 56 to 47% in the past 10 years. And, uh, I mean, this is, this is quite important, Gary, because as you know, this is the first occasion on which Treasury has been able to make public its views about the GST, because as you remember, the Rudd government prevented the department from considering the GST when it did the Henry Tax Review. Yep, and I would think that the, all the indications are that we're in for at least a two or three percent increase in, uh, in, in GST before very long. Well, it's going to be subject to a lot of debate because the Labor Party will oppose it. And, I mean, look, this is going to be very, very uh, tense to watch. But having said that, Gary, Joe Hockey said he doesn't believe Australian households could cope with an increase or broadening the GST right now. And he says it's not even on the radar. Mm. And what he says he wants to do instead is start a conversation about the entire tax system. 
And he says it's not the right time to change the GST. And he says it's impossible to change without support of the other side of politics. Labor, of course, has ruled out increasing or broadening the GST, calling it lazy, lazy reform. Yeah, that's true. But, I mean, the government's got to get some money from somewhere. And, you know, probably uh, GST is the, is the least problematic. I mean, if he starts taxing businesses too hard, he's going to kill initiative and investment. Uh, you know, and the rest of it, super, would be a sore one. And I think GST is a target, but, you know, I don't really know. Well, I think I think uh, super will be the way to go because the Labor Party will support that. And so there'll be a crackdown on superannuation concessions received by the wealthy. And that seems to be the next major tax reform because both sides of politics declared they want to tackle the issue. Yeah, whether that'll get the amount of money the government needs, of course, is a question, isn't it? That's right, yeah, but uh, let's let's watch this space. Now, uh, at the same time, banks and credit unions want the federal government's scrap plans for a tax on bank deposits, and uh, the bank deposits insurance locally is likely to be unveiled in the May budget as part of a move to raise $500 million a year, and the coalition is expected to proceed with a bank tax, which was first proposed by Labor ahead of the 2013 election, which had been rejected by Tony Abbott. And Labor proposed at the time a 0.05% levy on every deposit of up to $250,000. And the Australian Bankers Association, which represents 23 banks operating locally, said the tax would hurt savers and self-funded retirees who are already struggling with low interest rates. Mm. Yep, we're in a bind, aren't we? Well, watch, well, the budget in May will reveal everything. Now, at the same time, though, Tony Abbott has given a very clear hint that this budget will feature tax cuts for small business and a better deal for childcare. And he talked to the Victorian Liberal Party State Council over the weekend, last weekend. He's told the State Council, quote, there will be good news in this year's budget, good news for family with better and more affordable childcare, and good news for small business in particular, which desires a tax cut. So make about what you will. Mm. Yeah, I know. It's a message that isn't matched to with the Joes, though, isn't it? That's right, that's right. And uh, at the same time, uh, the Abbott government says Australia intends to sign up to the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the so-called China Bank. The decision to join comes despite urgings from Washington for Australia not to take part. And in the end, participation of major European countries like Britain, France and Germany pushed Canberra over the line. But at the same time, Abbott has qualified his support for the bank. He says the government still has governance concerns. And he says the board of directors need to have authority over key investment decision. And he wants to make sure that no one country controls the bank. Well, that's pretty sensible, I guess, yes. Now, uh, other piece of news is that... Uh, Coca-Cola Amatil is banking on the $10 million launch of Coke Life on April the 7th to restore volume and sales growth to the entire Coca-Cola brand. And that's after a horror year in 2014 when sales of Coca-Cola fell 2% net profit by 25% to the lowest level of her eight years. And Coke Life, which is the first new Coke brand since the successful launch of Coke Zero in 2006, that's sweetened with a blend of fresh uh, cane sugar and stevia which is a plant-based sweetener, 300 times sweeter than sugar, but it's 35% fewer kilojoules than classic Coke. And the company plans to boost its activity on social media to attract the younger drinker. And it's introducing smaller can sizes. Now, Coke is actually targeting 30 to 45-year-olds as a growth market, Gary. And they would be uh, very sensitive about sugar. That's right. For two reasons. One is um, you know, weight and, and system. The other one is... Uh, 
the rising tide of diabetes in the community. That's right. And uh, the final bit of news, Gary, is that legal firm Slatter and Gordon has entered, has uh, is taking over UK-based Quindil for 1.25 billion, and that's that's quite significant, and that's going to launch uh, Slatter and Gordon into the ASX 100. And also, finally, the price of iron ore has tanked again. It's trading at a new six-year low. Last I saw it was at $53.14 a tonne. That's the lowest since 2009. And it's fallen more than 60% since the start of 2014. And analysts don't expect it to bounce back until next year. Yeah, which, uh, and then look for how many of the surviving junior miners are going to survive that. You know, BHP will be okay. Well, what about Fortescue? Questions are being raised about Fortescue at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Twinkie's got some problems. That's right. Well, anyway, uh, that's it for this week, Gary. Tremendously, I'm not very good. And next week, we're going to be talking to uh, Jonathan Michaels, who's an automotive industry lawyer from the US, and he's going to be talking to us all about Uber. So it's going to be fascinating talking to him. Yeah, Uber is a, an international problem, and uh, this uh, class action he's, he's starting off is going to be really fascinating, not only in the US, but also in Australia and India and, and in Europe, yeah. Right around the world, yeah. So anyway, if you want to keep in touch with us, uh, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.